You're listening to the Seahawks Insiders. Second down and two, the handoff to Penny. At the 15, at the 10, at the 5. He's in. Touchdown, Seahawks. Getting you ready for Seahawks football every Sunday. First and 10 at the Seattle 40. Play fake Stafford. Going to stop, going to look, gets hit, goes down, back in midfield. Getting to him in the backfield is Daryl Taylor. Presented by Delta, the official airline of the Seahawks. Now, here's your host, Jen Mueller. And today we are getting you ready for who you might be seeing on Sundays this year with the Seahawks completing a draft that included 10 draft picks, a very large rookie class added to last year's draft class that was also a pretty sizable class with nine players taken. We're going to break down what the Seahawks did. John Boyle, as always, my partner in crime from Seahawks.com. Hello, Jen. How are you? Hello. I'm well, and we have to be on our best behavior because you recruited a guest today. Very special guest. We've got the one and only Rob Rang, best draft analyst in the biz, if you ask me, and a lot of other people. I would absolutely agree. Welcome, Rob. Very kind of you both. Uh, thank you for having me. Here's what I need to ascertain before we start. Are you like back in play on the 2023 draft? Because my understanding is you have already turned in a 2024 mock draft. I cannot go that far, Rob. Like I only I can barely remember what the Seahawks did on day one of the draft. <laughs> well, I, I can still remember two days ago, but looking 363 days in the future definitely is testing me a little bit. But yes, when you uh, cover the NFL draft as I try to do, then there really is not a, a day off, Jen. And so that's what um, that is. My focus is trying to make sure that my 2024 mock draft is as accurate or hopefully even more accurate than my 2023 one was. Well, and because you have covered the draft for so long and you do this with such um, intensity and focus, it was interesting to hear John Schneider talk about how this draft went and how just kind of scattered and unpredictable everything was. Would you agree? And why did that happen? I I would agree. I think the word he used was random. And I thought that it kind of made me chuckle when he said it. But uh, I did think that there were some selections from other clubs that felt a little random. And uh, just because there were some players that were selected that just about everybody knew had some medical questions, had some character questions. And to see these players go as early as they were, whereas the Seahawks were kind of getting players that are four-year starters and they have all these recommendations from their coaches and fellow players that I'm sure that it did feel a little random to the Seahawks because they were prioritizing good football players and good people, whereas it felt like some of the other clubs maybe were just focusing on one or the other. Yeah, and to to expand on that, Shiner was saying that after day two of the draft, so we're talking second and third round picks, and he's saying, you know, these are guys that are on our medical board, our free agent board, which for those who don't know the lingo, like... Free agent board means the guys they don't have a draftable grade on. That's like an undrafted free agent or a medical being a guy they're not going to pick because of injury concerns. And those guys are going on day two to some teams. So a lot of, as John put it, randomness going on in this draft. Well, and when you take a look at this year's draft compared to last year, the similarity is you had a large draft class because you had draft capital to play with. The difference to me, as I look at these 10 picks, last year it feels like they were doubling up, right? Rob, like you talked about four-year starters. Last year it felt like they were doubling up at positions. You had guys that you were sure had the resume, and then maybe you took a chance, right? And you drafted a Tariq Woolen, but you also had a Kobe Bryant that was out there, vice versa. When I look at this... certainly later rounds, right? I don't know how Kenny McIntosh, the running back, is going to fit in. I know they needed a running back, but I I think that they approached the draft differently because they could. Here's my big question. Did Seattle address their biggest needs? 
I think they did, but it took a while. And, and that's what made this draft unique in that um, they waited. And Seattle took, the, of course, the cornerback, uh, Witherspoon, at number five overall. They took the wide receiver, Jackson Smith and Jigba, at number 20 overall. And when they made those selections, when I viewed Seattle's biggest areas of concern, the interior, the offensive and defensive lines, I thought, whoa, what's going on here? You're, you're addressing areas that are our needs, but not critical needs, at least in my opinion. But for the way that Seattle came back on day two and day three and were able to address the line of scrimmage as, as well as they did with, again, these four-year starters, these, these kind of plug-and-play options, I think that, to me, is one of the, the takeaways from this year's class and how it is kind of a parallel, how it is kind of an extension of last year's group. Um, but I thought that you made a great, par- uh, a great distinction between the two classes, though, Joe, when you mentioned the fact that, that last year they kind of double-dipped at the positions. This year it felt like they were not so much double-dipping, although running back, obviously, two, two backs, but they were double dipping in terms of, again, the character and the production on the field. And that I thought was a, is a nice way of making sure that these are the kind of players who are going to justify where they were selected and perhaps even play better than, than expected. And I think this was a good case of, as John Schneider always says, they're, they're following their board of look like they all knew the defensive line was their biggest need coming in. But if you don't have a guy you really love with a first round grade, and instead you can get who you think is the best cornerback and the best receiver guys at two premium positions in the first round. You do that and then you kind of figure it out as the draft goes along. And they, you know, they had some guys come to them later in the draft that they liked at those line positions that, as you said, were probably the bigger needs. But this, I think we're, you know, we all, it's almost sounds cliche to say take the best player available, but it felt like, especially those first two days, that's what we were seeing. It was just like, look, here's how the draft board's going. We're taking that guy. Well, and you've got playmakers, right? And we can dive into what those playmakers will specifically do for this team. But how about if we hear what the GM thinks about those playmakers? Really excited about Devin and, and Jackson uh, and what they're going to bring to this, this organization. Uh, both big-time competitors. Devin, arguably one of the most physical players in the draft, uh, regardless of position. And uh, Jackson, big-time big time production and arguably the best receiver uh, in, this, in this draft class. Uh, well, in our opinion, he wasn't yeah. the best. <laughs> yeah, you kind of do have to say that. And look, I, I do think Devin Witherspoon, best cornerback, Jackson Smith and Jibba, best wide receiver Seattle gets playmakers and here's what I'm seeing happen in this one look you've got a cornerback that can play opposite Tariq Woolen who can start right away you want to get that pass rush going which by the way Seattle was not middle or even bottom of the rankings when it came to uh, getting pressure on the quarterback I know that there was some misalignment or not quite fitting that you know that that defensive front much maligned. That's the word that I was looking for on that one. They were still able to, to create pressure. You put Devin in the in uh, that secondary with Tariq, I, quarterbacks are going to have to hold the ball an extra second. That does help your pass rush. And to me, when I look at Jackson, I want a guy that can work the middle of the field. I love that Tyler Lockett is reliable on third downs. I would prefer not to see him taking some of those hits across the middle of the field, right? So not only did you get playmakers, you potentially lessen the load on some of the other guys or position groups, right? Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. I think kind of going, starting off with, first with Witherspoon, 
when you have a player that played as well as Tariq Woolen did a year ago, then the, the obvious uh, solution to that from an opposing quarterback's perspective is let's just not try to throw the ball anywhere near this guy. Let's attack the other side of the, of the field. And I think that it requires you to be able to find a player who mentally is very tough, that's going to be able to handle that, and then is an agitator. And that's exactly what uh, Witherspoon is. I mean, the way that he kind of jostles away receivers when they first are trying to get into their route, he is just in their back pocket, and he just kind of annoys the the opposing wide receiver to the to the point where the you know he, he was voted the Big Ten defensive back of the year for a reason because this guy is just that much of a nuisance in coverage. So I think that between what the success that Seattle had with Tariq Woolen on one side and then again with Witherspoon on the other, I think that that physicality really matches. And then with uh, Jackson Smith and Jig, but look, Tyler Lockett is spectacular. DK Metcalf is spectacular, but. Seattle has needed for a while now a third receiver, a third, uh, whether it be tight end or a wide receiver, but somebody else that can make some big plays. So it's not always on Tyler Lockett on third down or whatever the case might be. And I think specifically a, a, a pass catcher that has some run after the catch ability. And that doesn't necessarily have to be straight line speed. It means physicality. It means uh, just balance through contact. Jackson Smith and Jigba has all of those things. And that's why I think that he's going to be an excellent fit. I, I think that he is going to come into the NFL and be you know, similar to Ken Walker a year ago and then being a legitimate offensive rookie of the year candidate, I think he's going to put real numbers in this offense immediately and, uh, and justify Seattle's selection. You make the comparison between Jackson and Ken Walker the third. Pete Carroll made a comparison to Witherspoon and one of his former players at SC that puts the first-round pick in some pretty heady company. Devin Witherspoon, is, is a, he's a rare player. And uh, we've been through this draft just to, since the years we've been here. We haven't seen a guy like this. And, uh, you know, we have not drafted corners high in, in just because we haven't come across a guy that, of this, this makeup. And it's really uh, it's his athletic ability. It's his speed. It's, it's his playmaking. It's his mentality. I uh, haven't come across a guy like this in a long time. Last time I, I recognized this kind of makeup was uh, back at SC when we had a guy that you guys may know, Joey Palomalo, was a guy that had an extraordinary way about the way he played the game. And I, I saw this connection between uh, uh, you know what Devin does and how he looks at the game and how he approaches it. Yeah, I mean, that's about as heady a company as you can put someone in. I mean, Pete Carroll obviously coached Troy Palomalo at USC, and then we all saw the the career he had. And Pete Carroll even acknowledged, I was like, I, look, this, I, I know he knew what he was saying. It was, wasn't like, oops, I slipped up and compared him to a Hall of Famer. Like, he did that very intentionally. And it's not, you know, they're different players, different positions, but it was, he talked about the makeup, the competitive nature. I'm mean, just, the, it was more, it was obviously a lot of what came through on tape, but also the sitting down when, when he was out here for a 30 visit and just the conversations they had and talking about football really just jumped out at Pete Carroll. And again, that's some rare company you're putting him in. Yeah, to your point, John, I mean, like, rare company. I mean, when, when Pete Carroll said the name Troy Polamalu, I mean, my jaw just dropped. I just thought, wow, that you're going way back there. And that's quite, the, that's a hall of fame player that you're making this comparison to. And a player that played, you know, one's a safety and one's a cornerback, of course. And so when Pete said that, I looked at John Schneider and I was like, okay, 
is John's going to like look at him like, are you crazy? The way I initially thought. Instead, I saw John kind of nodding his head in agreement. I think that Pete Carroll has been talking with his scouts, his coaches, and has been using this player comparison for a while now. And uh, I think that it, it fits because when you watch Witherspoon on tape, he is highly physical. He is highly instinctive. Uh, just, of course, the way that Troy Polamalu was. And, and that wasn't off the cuff. That's probably why Schneider wasn't surprised. I actually I ran into Pete Carroll in the hall after the pick, but before that press conference. And he said that, he's like, I'm going to say this to the media, but, and then he says, I was like, it's been in his head for a while. This wasn't just some random comparison he came up with. So pretty impressive stuff. It is impressive. And remember what that came off of. It's not just watching how physical Devin is on the field. It's his decision-making. It's, it's what he's seen and why he's reacting the way that he did. Really impressed Pete Carroll. They, they talked about having a great conversation on his visit and just to your point, Rob, being a um, a great football mind and being able to be back there. Uh, I don't know that he's going to start week one because I haven't seen him go and it's all about the competition. That's why I have to say it that way. But it's going to be fun on week one. It to certainly watch will be there. So let's talk about Seattle's second round draft picks outside linebacker Derek Hall. And then you get a running back, Zach Charbonnet which always is going to make me think because three people have put in my head, how many times will you say Chardonnay? Everybody knows that I enjoy. Why, why would wine. you say Chardonnay? I, I don't know. Well, I know. What, what, are why, your fri- what, what are your friends what? getting at? I, yeah. Yeah. Why did every single friend text me to ask if I was going to call him a glass of wine? I don't know. Okay. We're going to talk about the second round pick. I'm going to get off the hot seat. We'll have, we'll hear what John Schneider has to say. Great day. Uh, you know, we, we, we drafted two grown men today, uh, huge competitors, uh, excellent human beings, uh, alpha dog guys, leaders. Uh, I mean, you know, Derek and Charbonnet are just really, really impressive people. You guys are going to you guys are gonna find them both really impressive. Uh, yeah, you know, pass rush, attitude with Derek, motor, hustle, uh, Charbonnet, just, you know, the toughness effort, uh, maturity with both these guys. I mean, it's just, uh, it's really exciting to, to add the toughness to this group. I am so impressed, by the way, that they do this without any notes. I have pages and pages of notes. I'm drawing down all of these things that the players are saying on the conference calls with us. And Pete and John, we're just throwing around first names. Like, we've known these guys forever. We've literally talked to them for five minutes. Now, I get it. Pete and John have talked to them far more. The fact that they didn't even have cue cards in front of them to talk about how balanced they are and what their, you know, pass rush technique is. I am personally amazed, but I am easily impressed at this point. So there's that. <laughs> well, I, th- I think with, with Derek Hall, uh, you're going to continue to be impressed, Jen, because uh, I think you're going to see his burst. I think you're going to see his power. Um, this is a guy that had 19 and a half sacks over his college career. And this is at Auburn. Th- this isn't some small school. This is going against SEC competition. Um, you know, and when you have that type of production, you don't have to go to the senior bowl, but the fact that he chose to do so anyways, I think again, speaks to his competitiveness, uh, and then quickly switching gears to Zach Charbonnet, just one of the things that to me is so obvious about him and why I think he's a terrific fit here in Seattle is that he's just a very different size and style of back than Ken Walker. Uh, you know, Ken Walker is so quick. He's so uh, instinctive and uh, he can make people miss. And he, of course, can, can go the distance with Zach Charbonnet. He is a little bit more of a power back that's better in the uh, in between the tackles. He certainly has enough speed to get to the outside. Uh, four five three was what he ran the forty yard dash, and for a back of his size, that's a darn good speed. 
But at the same time, he also, his game is really power. It, it's physicality. And, and so I think that one of the ways that you can keep Ken Walker III as fresh as possible is to use Zach Charbonnet as a bit of a battering ram. Um, and so I think that the style fits, but the other thing that's exciting about it is the fact that Charbonnet is kind of as pro-ready as it gets in a way because think about it, he was... Chip Kelly was his head coach at UCLA, former San Francisco 49ers head coach. And then obviously, uh, or he began his career at the University of Michigan. And that's Jim Harbaugh, another former NFL head coach. And so it's the, the fact that you have a player that has been productive in two very different offenses for two NFL head coaches. I mean, my goodness, that's about as pro ready as it gets. And, and Rob, when you did a seven round Seahawks mouth draft, who'd you have at number 52? <laughs> I did have Zach Charbonnet. So it makes it a little nicer <laughs> when, when nailed they that one. Uh, becoming you know, the, the pick that they make. I, it's funny. You, you mentioned kind of the power he has and the compliment to Ken Walker, because as long as Pete Carroll has been here, he's talked about, he wants that one, two punch. It's, he had the perfect example of it in college back in the, you know, Reggie Bush, Lundell White. And I think he's always kind of been chasing that of, I mean, obviously when you have Marshawn Lynch, great. You have a hall of fame caliber running back who never comes off the field, but you know, for most NFL teams, you need a couple guys who can get the job done and play different styles. And they're really looking to get that with Adam Charbonnet to the mix. And, and to your point, John, I mean, it's, that's the thing. It's like, yeah, if you have a Marshawn Lynch, if you have a guy that can be that bell cow, sure. But we, we just know that running backs are a position of, of attrition. Yeah. I mean, they, they physically break down. So if you can do that, have those complementing styles, I think it just makes your your team that much stronger for the long term. I do think we all got a little spoiled by Marshawn Lynch. From oh, like, no question. He comes here in 2010, and he missed like one game until the 2015 season. And that's, that is not normal, that position. So that's why, I mean, I know some people are like, oh, you drafted a running back last year, and you get him another one. You need depth at that position. Yeah. Well, and they they don't like maybe that it was a second round draft pick. But if you prize that run game and everything that you can do off the run game, why wouldn't I want one of the best running backs in the draft? Exactly. And this was a good class for running backs, as I think is evident by the fact that Kenny McIntosh is a seventh round pick after winning a couple of championships at Georgia. Now, I understand that maybe his spring wasn't as great as he would like and that he fell a lot. But again, you talk about guys, there's a lot of draft picks for the Seahawks that played in power conferences. They know what this competition looks like. If you're getting McIntosh, and I'm not sure how he fits in, in the seventh round to go with Charbonnet, I, that position group looks much better than it did coming into the weekend. Oh my goodness, looks much, much better. You're absolutely right. Uh, you know, I, again, I, I love Charbonnet. I think that he's just a perfect fit. That's part of the reason why I made that projection. Uh, I didn't think that Kenny McIntosh should be available to them in the seventh round. I, I had him as a fourth round player. Um, he he ran a low four sixes at the combine in his pro day. And that's what I think turned some people off because this running back uh, class is is very good. And so by having a little bit slower 40-yard dash time, I think that that kind of dropped him down some team's boards. And I think that's a mistake, frankly, because when I watch Kenny McIntosh at Georgia and all of the, the number of backs that the Bulldogs have put into the NFL in recent years, to me, there was zero drop-off between the guys that were selected in the first or second rounds and then McIntosh falling all the way down the seventh round. When he was called upon at Georgia, he was absolutely spectacular. He's a great receiver out of the backfield. Uh, it took him a couple of minutes, but John Schneider remembered the comparison to Harvey Williams, the former LSU running back that was successful in the NFL with the Kansas City Chiefs. Um, and I can see that. And that's uh, Harvey Williams was a successful back as well. So he's a little bit different than the backs that Seattle already has. Ken Walker is so quick. Charbonnet is such a, a powerful runner. DJ Dallas is a good all-around back himself. 
McIntosh is a little bit more of a slasher. He's a great receiver out of the backfield. He's going to be spectacular on special teams. You know, I, I think that that was a home run selection. One of my favorite picks for Seattle overall. And of course, he wound up going in the seventh round, their last pick. Yeah, I mean, it, I think you, you look at the 40 speed and you're like, oh, okay, that's why I felt. I was like, you don't succeed as a running back in the SEC if you're slow. Yeah. Like, I mean, right. he, he may not have run well and had a tough spring, but you don't have that kind of, you don't play with without speed at that position in that conference. So, uh, again, to add two different running backs, as Rob said, very different styles that give you, you know, different skill sets. You go into this draft with only two running backs, and you're thinking, okay, like, how's this going to look besides Ken Walker? And now you feel like you got a really good, diverse skill set and some depth there. Who wants to talk about big guys? Sure, me, Four always. in a row. <laughs> Seattle takes four in a row in the middle rounds. Big guys, what do we got? Enough of the need addressed? I, I hope so. That that was my biggest concern. If I had to try to you know grade this draft class for the CX, that would be the one caveat I would throw out there is that you're you are addressing their biggest area of concern with middle round prospects, and so I think that it's important that they got the four year starters, the, the proven players that they did. Um, you know, so I'll start off here with Anthony Bradford. Um, you know, he's actually kind of the the contrast to the rest of the group because all the other ones were upperclassmen. Bradford decided to come out after his junior season at LSU. But talk about a pro-style offense and physicality and SEC and all that kind of stuff. And Bradford is a fascinating story to me. He, he's 6'5". He's 330 pounds. He is just a physical monster, just a big, strong man. But he also timed much quicker than you would expect for a, a big interior offensive lineman. So he has the size that you want as a big guy at the front, uh, at the point of attack. But Andy Dickerson and what we've seen, he, the offensive line coach, of course, for the Seahawks, what we've seen him look to do in Seattle is bring some of those, the quicker kind of offensive linemen that he prioritized in L.A., that's the thing. The beautiful thing about Bradford is that he is both that big brawling type, but also is fantastically quick when he needs to be. And again, John Shire kind of cited the fact that, that Bradford was asked to play left tackle the game that, that he was there to watch. You can't kind of to your point before about Kenny McIntosh. You can't play in the SEC unless you're a fast back. You can't you can't play the, left tackle yeah. in the SEC unless you are athletic. Can't be some big plotter who can't exactly. move but, out there. Yeah. But did that get, because he played mostly on the interior. Right guard, yep. So did some of that quickness get hidden? I mean, I don't I don't think about a guard needing to be fast. I definitely think about tackles needing to be fast. I, yep. I, did that get hidden somewhere along the way that, and goodness knows, I don't really check out offensive line prospects that heavily, so... Maybe everybody was talking about this and I didn't. No, no but I, th I think a lot of people did not see that initial quickness um, because you're, you got to really be paying attention to kind of some of the little things. Um, you know, it's kind of like a, you know, a baseball swing or something like that. Everybody's got their own style. Um, with Bradford, what really struck me where I saw his quickness, Jen, is, is when he was asked to block on the move and get to that, you know, release from the line of scrimmage and get up to the second level and get those linebackers in space and things like that. That's where he surprised me with how quick he was. There, you know, John mentioned that you don't want to be a big plotter. That's what you normally see for guys with 330 pounds is they struggle to get to that second level. He was meeting linebackers there and then being able to adjust, not just use his mass to, to block them. I also think it's funny how we talk about weight and what is needed at the NFL level, because wasn't it Cameron Young, the D tackle, who, by the way, has actually played end mm -hmm. quite a bit. Mm -hmm. He's going to be a nose yeah. for Seattle. Just I, I just want people to understand how large this man is and needed to gain 20 pounds in six weeks. 
Is it just like I could do that in a week and a half? What took him so long, John? Like what? I don't understand. And also, Not somebody Chardonnay. complimented that. <laughs> somebody Sorry. complimented Had me for gaining for twenty pounds. I might not be working out so much <laughs> anyway okay so what do we got cameron young because i know that you're concerned with maybe a mid-round pick he is a big body that also seems to be athletic might be just what seattle needs in there yeah he's one of my favorite players again and this is a guy that was on i have this list i call rangs gang and it's like my favorite day two day three prospects and this has nothing to do with the seahawks mm-hmm. this has to do with you know the players i like and uh, Cameron Young was on one of my Rangs gang players because he, as you said, guys who are six four, three hundred pounds, it seems like everybody in the NFL anymore is that size. And so I think that sometimes it's hard for listeners to try to picture this body type. Um, but Cameron Young is a big, big man. He is even bigger than that 6'4", 305, 310 pounds would, uh, would lead you to believe. He is really broad. He's got long arms. He's got massive hands. He's got tree trunks for thighs. He's very difficult to move off the line of scrimmage. That's exactly what you want a nose guard to do. If you think about how Al Woods and Brian Monet at times just dominate in the, in the middle, that's exactly what Cameron Young can do. And that's why I think that he was a great selection for the Seahawks. Again, one of my absolute favorite picks. As John Shire said, his back is almost as wide as Coach Hurts, which would be which a is to Clint Hurt. And yes. if you've seen him, he's, he's a big man. But yeah, I mean, one thing I thought was interesting at the league meetings in March when John Schneider was asked about, you know, defensive line, the interior, the guys you don't have, and tying that to the draft, he did say that that is a position that maybe is a little easier for rookies. Not not the whole defense line, but that particular like nose tackle where you only have so many different assignments are asking that it is a little bit easier of a rookie plug and play position. So they were probably counting on, even if we don't take a guy in the first couple of rounds, we should be able to find someone who can play right away. And they see that in Cam Young. I also love when you get a guy like that, when you tell me he was like a starting basketball player, because mm-hmm. yes. I just love like picturing in my head, big old plotting. I shouldn't say plotting. He's athletic, but just big man like that going down the court and banging around. And then the other thing, too, is I think, again, Seattle's track record of finding these big guys late. Mm-hmm. You know, Puna Ford, of course, was a starter for them for a while, and yeah. he was an undrafted free agent. And Brian Monet is a starting nose guard. He was a free agent. So I think Seattle's comfort with finding big guys on day three, I think, kind of speaks for itself. I also think that it's the opposite end of the spectrum that certainly had the media talking with Jarek Reed. I thought John Schneider's description of him was very interesting are you referring to angry little elf his his <laughs> reference to the movie I mean, elf he, he's I, and an while i elf. laughed i will not do that in front of Jarek. no he, seems... he didn't sound angry on his phone call with us though. no he uh, sounded he had just been drafted by an nfl right. team though, maybe so. that was the best time to talk to yeah, him maybe he, he slips into intense mode after that one but the reason that he was so excited and probably the reason he was so intense was that the the thing and the narrative that he feels he has to prove people wrong is his height and mm-hmm. that he can't play DB. You pointed out, John, a little bit of the measurables that Quandre Diggs has. Yeah. And so I think Seattle's more comfortable with that. But I-, I am very curious to see what role he fills, because if he slides in at, um, at nickel, that is a really crowded position or potentially crowded position right now. Yeah. I mean, initially right off the bat, this guy just screamed special teams. He did a yeah. lot of that in college. He's, you know, they were talking about how physical he is and the hitter. So I think that's where you find a role right away. But he talked about his versatility in that defense. They ran kind of a three, three, five where they have three safeties on the field a lot. 
you got to be able to do a lot of different things, which they really like out of their safety. So this is a guy, you know, I, I'm not going to pretend I watch a lot of New Mexico football, if any. So I'm not going to speak to his game. But when you just tell me versatile defensive back, feisty, undersized, six-round pick like that, that's a lot of Quandary digs in there. So I, I do think maybe there's, you know, as Pete Carroll said, some similarity there. And I think also with the, the ball skills, um, you know, he only had the one interception this past season, but I believe he had nine over his college career. Um, the interception that I do remember watching was against Nevada, and it was a one arm or a one hand over the over the shoulder, kind of Willie Mays kind of a catch. It was a beautiful interception. And, uh, you know, and again, this is a player that does have that chip on his shoulder, not only because of the size, but he played in New Mexico. We're talking about, you know, everybody else is from Georgia, is from Michigan, is from this or that, you know, these big time programs. And this guy's from New Mexico. And again, just going back to what, the, what John Schneider said, it sounds like he might just be the toughest guy in the room kind of a thing. So I, I think that the, the comparison or at least the similar style to Quandre Diggs, I think is really interesting to me um, just because of the, I think that he has the enough speed and instincts, uh, certainly the physicality to play that that deep center fielder role, but also slide down and play that nickel role as well. And it's that positional versatility as well as the special teams mentality that I think, uh, again, made him such a great fit for the Seahawks. It's going to be really fun to see these guys on the field. And I cannot wait to see this year's class with last year's class. Because when you have so many draft picks and there's so many similarities, when you talk about, you know, guys with something to prove or chip on their shoulders... Every single guy that we talked to following this draft had some sort of story. You combine that with last year's class, you've got a core group of players that has the potential to spend several years together and really make an impact on the franchise. I am super, super excited to see these guys on the field. That will happen for rookie minicamp, for OTAs, and then we will get underway with training camp. That's a little ways off. We'll let you sit with these draft picks, let you do a little breaking down of your own. But thank you, Rob, for helping us sort through what this all means for the Seahawks. John, it's always a pleasure. And for you guys at home, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.